Well, I've been so grateful for our study in Romans, um, what Chris has brought us through so far in this wonderful, wonderful study of God's righteousness, as it had shown us for a long while the depths of our sin. And now finally, as we finish chapter 3, we see the amazing grace of God in salvation. Our prayer as a leadership as we continue in this book of Romans is that our ministry would grow in our understanding of, but that we would grow in our love for the righteousness of God. September 22nd, 1862. Proclamation 95. It says this, at least in part. That on the first day of January in the year of our Lord, 1,863, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state in rebellion against the United States shall be then, thenceforward, and forever free. Freedom. Freedom for all. Proclamation 95, also known as the Emancipation Proclamation declared all, sta- all slaves within Confederate states legally free. This declaration penned by President Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War in concept brought radical change to the lives of over three million people. You see, it changed the federal legal status of these individuals from slave to free. For these three million former slaves, Proclamation 95 conceptualized a profound change. It encapsulated a change so intangible and so invaluable to these individuals, and that was freedom. And as the Civil War ended and emancipation progressed, lives were changed. Families were reunited. Communities were relocated. Careers were started. Education was pursued. Legacies begun. A lifetime of implication set into motion by the Emancipation Proclamation, simply which was a declared change of federal legal status. Now last week we were introduced to a different declaration of legal status change, and that was that of the Christian. You see, that was not a federal legal status with worldly significance but a spiritual legal status with eternal significance. Justification by faith in Jesus Christ. The amazing truth that God makes sinners righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. Tonight, before Paul turns the page on justification, he continues to explore this great truth. That not only in justification does God declare us righteous as Christians, as if that weren't enough, justification by faith has a lifetime of implications for the believer. Other effects, other points of significance that surround this great truth, that multiply its impact, that further cement this amazing reality in our lives and how we think, what we desire, and how we view our God. You see, most times when we think of justification, and I think rightly so, we think of the instantaneous change that occurs when God declares the sinner righteous. And that's 
true. Amen and amen. Well, in our text tonight, Paul shows us that justification by faith, this amazing instantaneous act of God's grace, ought to also have a continuous and an ongoing effect on our Christian lives. This is a word to the justified. It's a word to the justified that we might see our justification not only a declaration of righteousness, but as a challenge to our humility before God, before others, and before his word. So turn to Romans 3 if you're not already there. Romans chapter 3. And I want to begin reading tonight in verse 21 for a full effect of what this passage sits in terms of context. And we'll read through the end of our passage in verse 31. So Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is our text tonight, verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The truth of justification by faith in and of itself is, is amazing. As we saw last week in verses 21 through 26, that God would provide a, a means for sinners to have his righteousness, that he would justify unrighteous men by his grace, as this text says, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, that he might be shown to be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Well, tonight, as I said, we will see how justification not only changes our legal status before God, but also how it ought to fundamentally change our hearts and our minds. This amazing truth of justification by faith, the Holy Spirit, through the apostle says, ought to humble us continually before God. So tonight we'll see in this text three features of justification by faith that continually humble us before God. And that first feature, found in verses 27 and 28, is that justification by faith eliminates spiritual pride. Justification by faith eliminates spiritual pride. 
In our passage tonight, Paul uses the dialogue style we are familiar with from chapter 3. First, he poses a question, then he gives an answer, and then he gives an an explanation of that answer. And he does so three times, one time for each of the points we have tonight, each of those features. So here in verse 27, Paul poses the first question. He says, then what becomes of our boasting? That is to say, in light of the justification through faith in Jesus Christ, in light of the fact that God is both just and the justifier of those who have faith, because God declares sinners righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness, then what happens to our propensity to boast? What naturally, what logically, what theologically happens to the self-righteous man's pride in his own works? And I think Paul specifically has in mind here, in terms of the context, what happens to the Jews' boastful obedience to the law? What happens to the self-righteous man's confidence in his own works before a holy God? Paul's answer here is decisive. He says, it is excluded. It's excluded. The word here is to be shut out or to be made impossible. Paul digs a little deeper. He says, by what kind of law? By a law of works? He says, no, by a law of faith. He certainly has the flawed Jewish perspective of God's law in mind as he suggests a a law of works. That is to say, he's thinking of the legalistic Jewish perspective that had developed out of rabbinical teaching over time, uh, the tradition that sought to justify oneself before Yahweh by obeying God's law given to Moses. But as he compares it to the law of faith, as he calls it, he's referring to the underlying nature or, or the principle of justification. So you see, he's using the word law here as if it could read principle. That is to say, but by what kind of principle? By a principle of works? By uh, No, but by the principle of faith or the rule of faith. So any boasting, any pride, any ego, any self-confidence in one's own works and their possible effect on one standing before God, Paul says, is excluded, is eliminated logically and theologically and naturally by the way that justification by the principle of faith works. That is to say, if God justifies sinners if God reveals and provides and declares his righteousness, all boasting on the part of man is excluded. All self-righteous thinking is, is eliminated. All lofty thoughts of one's own doing are done away with because justification is by faith in Christ and it's God's doing and not our own. You see, if God had justified sinners by giving them rules to follow, such that they would be saved by that obedience, saved by merit, saved by works of that law, then there might be room for boasting. But God justifies sinners by his grace as a gift. Verse 24 says that. Titus puts it this way, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, we're saved. You see, God has always saved sinful man through faith, not our worthless works. 
And this fact, Paul says, ought to humble us before God. It excludes our boasting. When I was a student here at UCLA, when I was here at Grace on Campus, Grace on Campus sadly had the reputation among the on-campus groups, just in talking with friends from other groups, as the Pharisees on campus, the legalists. When I think about it, it actually kind of hurts. Now, I don't think that there was anyone that actually thought that we believed we were saved by our works. But I think it's because we had so much pride in the things that we did. We, we just enjoyed what we were doing as a ministry that we were known to be the Pharisees on campus because we had a lot of pride in what we did. The ways that we served, the church that we went to, the number of sermons that we listened to per hour, the number of events we had, even though half of them were birthdays. By God's grace, I think that reputation has changed. By God's grace. But I believe there is still the danger to have spiritual pride in the things that we do. Pride that's inconsistent with the nature of justification by faith with the nature of the fact that God has declared us sinners to be righteous. Pride that should be excluded by our faith. That somehow our serving or our preaching sermons or our sermon listening or our musical performances, our small group lessons, our evangelism even, our participants or participation or our attendance might change or maintain or improve our status before God in some way. It's as if at these times that we have this kind of pride that we've forgotten the depths of darkness we just spent two and a half chapters expounding and explaining. We act as if we've pulled ourselves out of that impossible tunnel and we continue to hold ourselves up by our own efforts and we can have pride in that. Well, the, just, the biblical truth of justification by faith in Jesus Christ in this passage tonight reminds us that it is for nothing that we have done that God saves us, and it is for nothing that we do now that God still loves us. But it's all through the redemption found in the blood of his Son. And Paul drives this truth home plainly in verse 28. Look there. He says, For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. Against the dark background of, God, of man's unrighteousness, the righteousness of God given to man in justification is a beacon of light that will continue to get brighter and clearer as we continue in Romans. That God would justify sinful man by faith and not by works. Here, this truth eliminates the basis for any spiritual pride and brings us to humble gratitude before him. There is no room for spiritual pride in light of justification by faith, Paul says. This is the very heart of the gospel and the core truth of justification itself, that God is the one who makes sinners righteous to himself. This law, this principle, this rule of faith, Paul says, excludes or eliminates our boasting. Justification by faith not only eliminates our spiritual pride, secondly, justification by faith is extended 
to all peoples. Justification by faith is extended to all peoples. This is found in verses 29 and 30. Paul here continues to explore the doctrine of justification by faith and its case against our pride. Here in verse 29, he poses the second question in our text. He says, or is God the God of the Jews only? Now, Paul here is addressing another sort of exclusive attitude. In elitism, the self-righteous attitude of the legalistic Jew who is pointing out his credentials as part of the people of God. As those who through Abraham, God had promised blessing. Now, as we know from the context of Romans, Paul is writing to the believers in the Roman church, a mixed group of Jews and Gentiles. And he is battling this pride that is among these believers, the sense of superiority of Jewish believers over Gentile believers, something that has already surfaced in Romans a couple times implicitly. Now turn to Genesis 12, and I think we can get a good picture here of where this pride might come from. Genesis chapter 12. And we see where this pride might come from, where God blesses his people Israel through Abraham for the first time. Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make, you, make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." You see, God promises Abraham land, descendants that would be Israel in the future, and blessing, a specific plan, a purpose, and prosperity for God's people. All of these unconditional promises that would happen no matter what for Abraham, then called Abram, who was later to be known the father of Israel. However, we can also see that God promises Abraham here that through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed, that Israel would be sort of the conduit for God's blessing to all people. And so while we see God's chosen, Abraham, we also see God's love already extending through his chosen. Look, though, at Genesis chapter 15, verse 5. and We see here God reaffirming and sealing his promises to Abraham through covenant. Verse 5 says, And he brought him outside, that is, God brought Abram outside, and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. So here he's reaffirming that he will have descendants, that he will have many descendants, and they will become the nation of Israel. And then look at verse 6. And he, that is Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now remember that this is before God gives his law to Moses. God doesn't give his law to Moses until 
Exodus, right? Exodus chapter 19, when God begins to give his law to Moses at Mount Sinai. But what does it say here in Genesis? Genesis 15, it says that Abraham believed God for who he was and for all his promises, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The New Testament shows us how it was that God would credit that righteousness, and it was by the sacrifice of the only one who could fulfill all righteousness, Jesus Christ, who demonstrated it at the cross. So whether for Abraham or for the Israelite, whether for Abraham or for the Israelite born under the law, or for you or me or for the modern-day believer, God justifies sinful man by faith and not by works. Now, if we were to continue through the Old Testament and the prophets and the New Testament and future prophecy, Scripture would give us the broad sweep of redemptive history. And we would see, again, on one hand, God fulfills his promises and begins other promises to his chosen people. And on the other hand, through his chosen people, through the Messiah specifically, Jesus Christ, who would come out of Israel, God would provide a way of salvation for the whole world, Israel included, but Gentiles included also. That through him, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, all the families of the earth would be blessed. God, through Jesus Christ, provides a way for his righteousness to be given to all, both Jew and Gentile. Justification by faith, that's what Paul is unpacking here in Romans. So turn back to Romans chapter 3, and we see Paul answers his own question from this wider biblical perspective of Abraham being saved by faith. And he says, is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the, uh, justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. You see, he appeals here to the logic of the Jew to argue his point that God justifies all by faith. Here he references the fundamental Jewish conviction, God is one. That there is only one God, and that is Yahweh, a conviction that set Israel apart from the peoples around them, something that every Jewish person would affirm. Deuteronomy 6 encapsulates this truth, which had at this point in time, when Paul was writing this letter, had become a daily prayer for the Jewish people. It's called the Great Shema, after the Hebrew word here, the first word in this text. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, familiar verse, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your might. And so Paul appeals to this logic. That is to say, Paul says, since God is one, because I know you affirm God is one and there is only one who is only one God who is God overall, that God, Yahweh, will indeed extend salvation to all, as you have seen throughout this first part of the early church, Roman church both Jew and Gentile, and secondly, that he will do so in the one same way because he is one God. In that one way, that one method of salvation throughout all time and all redemptive history is that he will justify Jew and he will justify Gentile by faith. 
God not only justifies men by faith apart from works of the law, he does so in a way that extends this offer of salvation to all peoples. Faith, rather than circumcision or any other works of the law, is decisive for becoming part of the people of God. Now, I know for most of us, as Gentiles on the other side of this equation, uh, we hear this text, we hear Paul's words here, and we find ourselves humbled before God. Not because Paul's directing, uh, directly addressing us, but because we're amazed at this truth. We read the passage in Genesis, and we realize God has a chosen people, and he will still be faithful to those promises But for us in the modern day to be included in the blessing of God through Jesus Christ, that is an amazing truth that God would extend his salvation, this offer of a right standing before him through Jesus to all peoples of the earth, us included. And as a point of reflection, I want you to listen to the words of Paul, this apostle, um, in Ephesians 2. He says there, therefore, remember that at one time you, Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Grace on campus, this amazing truth that God justifies sinful man by faith apart from works of the law. And that he does so in in the same way for all peoples, both Jew and Gentile. This truth here in Romans 3 and echoed in Ephesians 2 is truth that humbles us before God continually, that he would choose us. Now, I believe there are incredible applications from Romans 3, verses 29 and 30, that are a motivation for missions and for evangelism. But I want to focus tonight on one specific aspect that I think is most pertinent to us that's on a more fundamental level, that's on a basic sort of everyday level. I believe this text should challenge us in our pride and in how we view and how we interact with, uh, with other people. Because justification by faith cuts down every high horse. It brings the justified to their knees and allows us to see that to be humble before God is to also be humble before other people. To understand justification by faith and its extent over the whole world in its offer is to live a life of humility before fellow image bearers. You see, if God is gracious and compassionate to justify all peoples by the same faith in this text tonight, both circumcised and uncircumcised, we, out of all people, ought to display that same gospel equity in the way that we think, in the way that we interact, that it might serve gospel progress. We ought to be a signpost of the grace and the mercy found in the gospel. 
You see, if pilgrimages and ordinances and recitations and ceremony are signposts for the false religions of the world by which men justify themselves, we ought to be a faithful signpost for our God who justifies all, not by works, but by humble faith. You see, while we're not the Jewish individual here proudly proclaiming that God is the God of the Jews, this truth that God justifies all by faith and not by works surely weeds out any similar kind of exclusivity, any racial or regional or cultural superiority, any stylistic or preference-based pride, any pride in our own group or our own small group, our own circle of comfort. Any distinction that impedes reflecting the God of salvation and his equity and justice should be eliminated. It points us back to God and leaves us in awe and wonder of his glorious plan of redemption because his offer of justification by faith is extended to all peoples. Now, I believe we are particularly prone to this kind of pride against unbelievers, like this self-righteous Jew, we see those who are not a part of the people of God and we quietly judge their sin. Well, what would you expect from sinners, right? We hold them to the same moral standard that we hold ourselves to, even though they're not saved. We label some even unsavable in our minds. We proudly compare ourselves and of course we win every time. We feed our own pride. All of that, instead of being sobered over their sin and, and this sin that prevents them from knowing the God that we love. Instead of understanding that all have sinned and to all that God has extended this offer of salvation, we fester in our own pride. And I think we're prone to this kind of pride against fellow believers as well. That the very works we know we are not justified by, we hold in some way that makes us superior over others. Instead, Christian, we ought to have a humble deference, a gospel warmth, a practical recognition of our commonality in Christ. C.J. Mahaney puts it this way, the weakest believer and the strongest saint are alike equally justified. Justification admits no degrees. A man is either wholly justified or wholly condemned in the sight of God. Wholly justified or wholly condemned, we, the justified, ought to live out God's grace. You see, if God justifies Jew and Gentile by faith, you ought to see your fellow man through this lens of humility and equity and grace, a sober humility that discerningly seeks unity with other believers and recognizes the opportunity that we have to be a picture of the gospel to the unsaved this gospel that we ourselves have been saved by. Justification eliminates our spiritual pride. Justification is extended to all peoples. And thirdly, justification by faith upholds God's law. It upholds God's law. Finally, Paul here addresses a final question in light of justification by faith. And shows us this final feature of justification that humbles us before, before God. 
Look at verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Paul says, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. As he presents this doctrine of justification by faith, he knows that there will be those who accuse him of seeking to oppose God's law. What theologians call antinomianism, anti-namas, being against the namas, the law. If justification is by faith, if obedience to the law does not save us, as Paul has said, is the law then to be overthrown? Is it to be nullified? Is it rendered powerless? If salvation by faith apart, if salvation is by faith apart from the works of the law, then what good is the law? Is another way to ask this. And I think as doctrinal as this sounds, I think as theological as this sounds, I think this is a very, very, very common thought for us as Christians. That to think about our right standing before God, that to be in a desire to battle legalism in our lives, we dismiss the law of God. As if it were some old alternate way of salvation that we vaguely know, yet definitively reject. We know we misunderstand the role of the law because the New Testament says some things about it and we read those things and we just kind of think, well, what we really know is we're saved by grace and through faith alone, so the law must not matter since it doesn't save. So in effect, I believe we overthrow the law sometimes by our faith. So it's a valid question on a practical level. So I think on differing levels, we resound with this question in verse 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Well, Paul definitively, emphatically answers this question. He says, by no means, or may it never be, or absolutely not. Paul uses this same powerful refusal 10 times in the book of Romans. And on the contrary, Paul says, we uphold the law. Some translations use the word establish here. That is established not in the sense of setting something up for the first time, but established in the sense of firming up or reinforcing. We affirm the law, Paul is saying. We support it. We uphold it. Why is it that those who are justified by faith uphold the law, then is the question. You see, if we are justified by faith alone and not by works of the law, what is the purpose, what is the value of upholding God's law? What good does that do? Well, again, for the third time, the answer Paul gives is one that brings the justified to our knees. It's one that humbles us as the justified. This is a word to the justified, to us, that we ought to be humble before God. His answer reminds us that this is all about God and not about us. You see, the reason we uphold the law is found in what Paul has just said earlier in this chapter. Look at verse 20. The end of verse 20, it says, Since through the law comes knowledge of, of sin. You see, the law exposes sin. It, it proves to us that no man can fulfill God's righteous standard Galatians even tells us that it is a tutor to bring us to realize our need for Christ. 
It demonstrates man's sin and need for a Savior. But Paul continues. Look at verse 21. He says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That first phrase referring to Christ, right? Now, at this present time, God has manifested his righteousness through Christ. But he says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The law and the prophets bear witness to it. What's it? The righteousness of God. You see, although the righteousness of God is now manifested through Jesus Christ in this current era of redemptive history as God's provision for justification through faith, the law and the grand scheme of redemptive history still holds a rightful and valuable place for the Christian. It embodies the righteousness of God. It represents the character and the nature of a holy God. How God's chosen people, Israel, could by how they worshipped God through their sacrifices and how they settled disagreements with each other and reconciled with one another. How they shared the corners of their fields to provide for others and hundreds and hundreds of practical ways to show the nations around them the character and the nature of a holy God and most of all the righteousness of God. You see, a right understanding of God's law helps the modern-day Christian to see the righteousness of God on display in Scripture. It allows us to see the universality of God's righteousness revealed. And when he says something is good or something is toil or something is sinful, that it always corresponds with his nature and his glory. It allows us to see, the law does, to see God's standards for holiness, that they're rooted in his character at all times and in all ages, whether they are manifested in creation or in code or in love. The law allows us to see that what it means to, to live as a sinful yet restored image bearer, to worship him. The law allows us to see that no man can ever perfectly obey Obey God's law that no one can ever meet God's holy standard. And the law allows us to see the need for God to justify sinners by the righteousness of Christ. And even though as Christians we are not bound by the Mosaic law, we do have the commands of Christ and we have the commands of the rest of Scripture that we ought to desire to obey because they also represent the righteousness of God and the rest of his character and his nature. We ought to cultivate a love for God's law. Like in Psalm 119, the psalmist says, Oh, how I love your law. We ought to learn like Ezra to study God's law, then to do it, and then to teach it. Because these commands are the ways of righteousness. They represent God, his character, and his nature. And so this fact that justification by faith, in fact, upholds the law, affirms the law, supports the law, again, humbles us before God and his righteousness, challenging us to uphold the law and view it rightly as Christians, saved by faith, saved by God's grace. 
Well, as we approach Fishing Week and the Ask Anything event next Friday, I can't think of another better anchoring point for our hearts tonight as we go forward this next week. You see, as we prepare to interact with so many others, saved, unsaved, from other on-campus groups, atheists, agnostics on campus as we fish, we need to think upon this fact that the faith that we share and the way that we interact with others and the way that we share our faith should, ex- should exude this humility, should exude this humility that is consistent with our message. That this fact that we've been justified by faith apart from works, that it would be evident in our lives and in our words and in our attitudes as we share the gospel. Tonight we've heard Paul's word to the justified. These three features of justification by faith. This amazing reality that God justifies sinners, making us righteous, and how that humbles us continually before God. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 captures it well. It says, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Grace on campus, may we realize every day the greatness of the salvation that we've received and would we humble ourselves before God in light of justification by faith.